I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. Today's a pretty bad day, man. I'm feeling pretty deflated, like, I feel like a total fool out here. I've lost five tenths, you know. I got swept out into open water, and now I'm lost. I'm on these back roads, there's no signs. So I have no idea where I'm going right now. It's like, what the hell am I doing back here? Those are the exhausted, questioning words of award-winning Canadian filmmaker Dionne Whalen. At this point, she's about 100 days into a 24,000-kilometer trek along the world's longest trail. Her epic journey on the Trans-Canada Trail by bike, canoe, foot, and snowshoe took her more than six years to complete. It's all documented in a beautiful film, 500 Days in the Wild. Dionne Whalen is with us from our studio in St. John's, Newfoundland. Dionne, good morning. Good morning, Matt. What's it like to listen back to yourself on that bad day? Oh, I remember that day very well. Where were you? I was in Nova Scotia, caught in some one of those late fall hurricanes that comes in from Florida sometimes. So uh, I was in dire straits at that moment. (laughs) How do you lose a tent? But I'm not Uh, sure that you lose a number of tents, but how do you you lose a tent? One tent I lost because I just didn't strap it on uh, well enough to the back of my bike. So that was a little bit embarrassing. Um, Another one uh, just got absolutely destroyed by the first rainstorm I hit when all the windows just started falling out. Some glue manufacturing dysfunction or something. Um, Another one, a couple poles broke. It was just one thing after another, really, Matt. And uh, I can honestly say, you know, you're really tired at the end of the day and I just wasn't taking proper care to tie things down properly Hmm. and on-the-job training. (laughs) We'll come back to that. Um, For people who don't know, just describe what the Trans-Canada Trail is. The Trans-Canada Trail stretches from three oceans in Canada, the Atlantic, the Arctic, and the Pacific. It's made up of 487 different land and water trails. Why did you decide that it would be a good idea to go across this trail? Well, from a professional perspective, Matt, I had made a film on Mount Everest, Mm -hmm. and I'd made a film up in Canada's high Arctic. So I'd been to the, you know, tallest mountain in the world, one of the most northern coastlines in the world. So something that was billing itself as the longest trail in the world caught my attention. But also from a personal perspective, the life that I had lived was uh, going through a lot of transition. Uh, my marriage had just ended and a dog that I'd had for many years of my life had just died. And so everything that was kind of holding me to one place was gone. And um, I thought, well, I need to make a new film. And uh, maybe it's time to check out to check in for a little while, too. Check out to check in. Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, this comes up a number of times in terms of, and we'll talk more about what it's like to be out there, Um, but what does that phrase mean to you? Well, I mean, I get it from a Reinhold Messner quote, who was the first man to climb Everest without oxygen, and his famous quote was, I climb high to go deep inside. Mm. 
And I think the, you know, checking out to checking in was my kind of version of that, which is just stepping outside of your life and walking away from bills and relationships and the news and uh, money and um, spending some time with yourself and just stripping away those labels and stripping away those layers. And, uh, well, solitude reveals what a mirror cannot. What were you looking for, do you think? I was looking for some understanding and um, I was looking for some hope. Sometimes when you look at the news, it feels like the whole world's full of psychopaths, you know? I just needed to take a break from all of that. And I think a lot of people feel that way. What's great is it didn't take very long to be reminded that the world is, in fact, not filled with psychopaths, that it is, in fact, filled with very kind people. You admit, as you started on this, that that this is, in your words, a totally insane idea. Yes. You aren't an extreme athlete. New. What did it take? How do, you, how do you prepare for something like this? One day at a time. I mean, really one day at a time. Uh, I didn't set off with a plan that was going to carry me through 24,000 kilometers. I broke the journey down into one trail at a time. So it's 487 trails. The first one was a 988-kilometer path across Newfoundland following the old rail line. So that was my starting point. And if I made it to the end of that one... Then I'd prepare for the next one, which is a 388-kilometer paddle of the Bredore Lake. And I just kind of went through it that way. And, you know, that was my superpower, Matt, because when we spend a lot of time making a plan, we become very rigidly attached to it. And I can tell you that the secret to my success on this one was my capacity to adapt. Um, If I had planned too far in advance, I would have gotten it all wrong anyway because I knew by day 10 I hadn't gone as far in 10 days, <laughs> I thought I could do in three. Because that early road, that path that you're on, I mean, that's a tough trail, right? There's a lot of footage initially of, of you tumbling off the bike. <laughs> well, they didn't take the crush rock off, <laughs> off the rail line. <laughs> but, you know, the harder the rock, the softer the heart. So one of the reasons, there are a lot of reasons why I wanted to start in Newfoundland. I mean, one is I wanted to follow the sun back home. But the other reason is my grandmother and my great-great-grandmother, you know, are from here. My father was born here. And I knew that by starting in Newfoundland, I was starting in one of the kindest places I could start in Canada. Mm -hmm. Because if I got into trouble, I literally could go knock on anybody's door with no fear at all. You visited an elder um, near the beginning of, of, of the trek. Tell me a little bit about that visit and, and, and what the elder gave you. So three months before I left, uh, I was invited up to Haida Gwaii in northern BC uh, for a film festival to show my last film on Mount Everest. And while I was up there, I met a traditional knowledge keeper named Vern Williams. And when I explained what I was about to do, he invited me over and I went over to his place and we went for a walk in the forest. And I asked him, you know, Vern... Um, I'm going to make this journey across Canada, and I really want to honor the ancestors of this land as I do it. Uh, They built the trail to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday, and I love Canada, but the story I was seeking started thousands of years ago. And so um, Vern gifted me something that was very... And this is a stranger, I mean, apart from our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, gifted me something that was extremely important to him. And he gifted me his feather that he uses, an eagle feather that he uses in his um, ceremony. And he taught me how to smudge with it. And he told me that I should do that on my journey because it would help keep me grounded. And that by carrying this feather across the country, I could honor the ancestors in that way. What do you think it gave you? 
Well, you know, it's so interesting, but I think I learned that our journey is shaped by what we carry in our heart. And I didn't know it at the time. I mean, my main concern was, oh, my gosh, I'm bringing this very tender um, feather with me on this very rugged journey. And so this need to protect this feather um, became like a big part of my journey. But because I carried it, because I cared for it, and because I honored it, it really did shape my journey. And I think in ways that I can't understand, it also led to some of the events that unfolded in the film, which is um, some of my time in other indigenous communities in Canada as I crossed it. Mm. You spent, what, 8,000 kilometers on the water? Yeah, I mean, it's everything's a guess because I wasn't out there measuring it. Like, I didn't measure this journey by how many kilometers I did a day yeah. or how many minutes I went. It was measured differently. Um, but, yes, I'm um, about that and uh, including, you know, um, Lake Superior paddle, solo paddle, and a 4,000-kilometer paddle <laughs> to the Arctic Ocean. You're on, Lake, well you're on Lake Superior and you can't find a place to camp, right? That's right. What happened there? Uh, well, the water levels had started to rise quite a bit um, for reasons I don't know in July. And uh, I couldn't find, you know, the, the rocks were quite steep and it was just virtually impossible for me to find camping on this one night. And day became night and I suddenly found myself in the dark with a headlamp on. Um, well, it was a pretty scary time. It was about four and a half hours of complete darkness and the weather had picked up and my canoe was kind of being tossed around and I couldn't see anything. But after four hours, I just really focused on controlling the panic. That's uh, what you have to do in those moments. And um, there's lots of ways, I guess, I developed of dealing with that, some of which I learned from other people. But um, basically, you have to refocus your attention. So either you sing a song or you say a prayer or, you know, in my case, I was saying the water is sacred. The water is sacred in an attempt at transforming my fear of the water into a sense of connection with it. But... Um, after several hours, my headlamp caught just a small white flower, and I knew if there's a small white flower, there's got to be land that that small white flower is coming off of. And uh, I beached and in the dark managed to put up my tent, and in the morning with the light was just really astonished to yeah. see that I was just found this little three-, four-foot little <laughs> side to land on. And the next day I paddled several hours before I saw what could have been an, an alternate camping spot for that night. So I really was very lucky to have found what I did that night. Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. What was the scariest thing that, that you had to deal with when you were out there? Hmm. I don't know if I There's a few say, suggestions that I might have, but sure. you continue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there isn't one that really pops out for me. I mean, I think some of the scariest moments were when I brought 
when some of my friends came mm. because I had a sense of responsibility for their well-being. I mean, in part, it was just amazing to be able to have a reconnection after being away so long. These are people, people who just showed up to, I mean, you're portaging, for example, and they show up mm-hmm. to help you out. Yeah, they're all my friends, most of them from the West Coast, who I've known for over 30 years, who, um, who came out to help me. Yeah, when they realized maybe needed a little help and also some companionship. But bringing them also terrified me because um, now it wasn't just responsibility for myself. It was also being responsible for someone else. What about the bears? Well, you know, I I always like to preface this next comment by saying that I, I let's say I met a hundred bears, right? And only one of them was a mean one. Um, so I think it's important to remember that. It only takes one though. <laughs> yeah, it really does only take one. So uh, there's a scene in the film, as you know, where um, paddling, I'm joined by Louisa, a friend of mine. I'd say we'd done about 3,000 kilometers already and we're just above the Arctic Circle and we get a message on our sat phone that there's a man that had been paddling in front of us that we had hoped to meet. Actually, his name was Julian. He was uh, also an artist. He was recording uh, sounds to make into a musical piece. Anyway, he was hauled out of his tent in the middle of the night and eaten. And of course, this, um, well, this this changed the journey for us. I mean, at that point, it wasn't just a physical challenge, but it became a psychological one. And I need to put the context around this, that in the months that we paddled, we never saw another kayaker or canoeist. We only heard of two, yeah. and he was one of them. All of a sudden, you know, the reality of, of facing that kind of danger, you know, you're in a tent, it doesn't have a lock. <laughs> so you're vulnerable out there. That, that definitely was a big challenge for us. Did you ever think about quitting? I mean, we played that clip at the beginning where you talk about how you feel like a total fool and you're lost and you're stuck in the rain and there's no tent and it seems like you almost get struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Most people, I think, in those circumstances or a few months in or a few years into this would say, you know what, Uh, I like the comfort of home and a Mm -hmm. bed and, as you said, a door with a lock on it. (laughs) Did you think about pulling the plug? I really didn't, only once. You didn't? I once, but it had nothing to do with with my fear uh, of those things. Um, at the end of 219, I got word that my mother had been rushed to the hospital yeah. and that her aorta above her heart had ripped open. And this is not something she was expected to survive from. So some, you know, I got picked up off the trail by Louisa and drove two days back to Vancouver. And I spent three weeks uh, in the hospital with my mom and um, really thinking that that was it for me. Uh, for the journey. But uh, as she she got better, you know, she kicked me out, basically. She's just like, don't be silly. You've got to go finish what you started, and I'll be waiting for you at the finish line. And she was. What did it say to you that you didn't think about quitting? I'm sure there were moments, like dark moments, where you have to kind of gut it out. Um, but you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, if you know me, you know I'm stubborn. I mean, once I set my... Once I set a goal, I'm pretty determined to follow through on it. And in order to do this, I didn't have any big financing when I left. I didn't even have a grant when I left. So I um, I gave up my home, I sold my car, and I got rid of all my bills. So I made it rather difficult on myself to be able to return. <laughs> what did your family think of that? Oh, they're pretty used to it, I think. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, I think my mom said, you know, when you were a baby, I was born in Toronto. Whenever I cried, they'd wrap me up and put me in this baby carriage and just roll me outside at like minus 17 and I'd stop crying and I got really happy. And it's that nature nurture thing, you know, we are both um, who we are, our little spirits, you know, upon birth as well as the influences around us. But this part of me is very authentic 
to my being. I love the outdoors. I always have. And when I was searching for my purpose in life, I tried to blend my love of storytelling with my love of nature. And so all of my uh, films are, are rooted in outdoor expeditions, really. Let me ask you about the kindness of strangers. You said earlier that one of the things you were worried about is that the world is, what did you say, the world is filled with psychopaths? Yeah, well, it feels like that sometimes, yeah. You're out, I don't know, I can't remember where exactly it is, but you're out paddling and there are some men who are fishing and they give you this like giant grocery bag full of <laughs> of moose meat? Uh, caribou, Caribou meat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's also up in the high Arctic. I'm on the uh, Mackenzie River. And have, again, haven't seen anyone in a long time, but have just passed a small community, Fort Good Hope, I think it was. And these guys had been out in the bush uh, hunting. So they were quite surprised to see this little red canoe uh, they floating They thought you were along, voyageurs. Right? They thought we were voyageurs. Yeah, they were joking about that. Anyway, and then when they found out that we were heading to talk, they were like, what the? Anyway, they came over and exactly gave us a big, said, hey, you want some fresh, you know, caribou meat? And, of course, we did. But at the same time, with our bear fear, we were like, oh, my God, we're bringing this raw meat into our boat. But we um, we took the meat and actually we stopped shortly thereafter and cooked it all up and we ate it like ravaged women, you know, right out of the pan. Um, but they also gave us heads up about this... Um, area uh, that we were going to be paddling through with big rapids and we had they gave us the intel we needed to safely navigate it which was stick far to the right because if you go to the middle or if you go to the left you're not going to make it. Did it reassure you that I mean your faith in humanity in some ways running into people like that? Oh gosh yes absolutely I mean over and over and over again I mean you know what I just I don't even know what the odds are of that but I really did not meet anybody that posed a threat to me in six years. Everybody I met was kind. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of about this film is that they, it didn't matter what your politics were. Mm. You know, it didn't matter if you were conservative or liberal or NDP. No one, I don't even know. And it didn't matter. What mattered was that we found ourselves in these places out in nature. And at that point, it was more, we all got excited about, hey, you know, I just saw a moose or there's fresh water around the corner or, you know, and it was just to be reminded that, in a, you know, it's wonderful that we celebrate our differences in this land. But I think we also need to remember what it is that we all share. And um, this journey very much highlighted that for me, that everyone was kind and that we all have the medicine to be healers just by being kind to one another, you know. I left rather broken, and I finished feeling much more optimistic about the future. The country just looks incredibly beautiful through this it film. It is. Like, it, it just, it, you're reminded of how stunning it is. It's my love letter to Canada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, when you finished this, um, it took you six years? Yes, six years, one month. When you when you were finishing it, when you're coming into shore, you're incredibly emotional. Yes. What was that like? Oh, well, you know, in that last few minutes, you're just remembering the thousands of people. Like I said, for a solo journey, it has a four and a half minute credit list. So, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of people that help me, right? And uh, But I guess in this, you know, for those who haven't seen the film, of course, there's a final scene where I'm coming into shore there and... Um, I've been asked if I'd like to follow traditional Coast Salish protocol and my landing and that, um, you know, 500, you know, for years before Canada was Canada, anytime uh, people arrived in boats, they were greeted on the shores by the local indigenous community. And the protocol required me to ask permission to come to shore and to say that I came in peace. And um, 
well, reconciliation was definitely a part of my journey. Um, I'm of settler descent, and uh, that that was very much um, a reason why I spent a lot of time in Indigenous communities, listening and learning on this journey, and and um, and building kinship with people because that's really what reconciliation is. It's this big word, and it's come to mean all kinds of things in politics and academics. But strip it down, it means kinship. It means friendship. It means in order to understand one another, we need to break share food and hold each other's babies, you know? Um, so anyway, it was really profoundly moving for me to be able to end this journey in that way. What did you learn about yourself at the end of that? I mean, part of this is about like how strong you are and what you're capable of, but there, I just wonder beyond that, what you learned about, about who you were. Well, I think I have a lot more emotional regulation now than I did before I left. And I'm definitely a lot more positive, uh, than I was before I left. Mm-hmm. And I think that my relationship to the earth changed, but that was as a consequence of the time that I spent listening and learning in indigenous communities where I actually feel that, and it took a few years, but something ancient in my DNA woke up. And at one point I did have this sense of being with the earth instead of on it. There's a line that you talk about how the, uh, the, the, the land is embedding itself in you. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, that it's just one word on instead of with or with instead of on, but I definitely transitioned into with instead of on both on the water and also just in um, a connection to myself, a different connection to the natural world around me. And what it did for me was just that reminder that, you know, humans are just 0.001% of all life out there. And when you're alone out there, you get to connect to that other 99.9%. And all of a sudden, you really start feeling like you're part of this web of life again. And, you you know, to everything except for the ticks and mosquitoes, which, quite frankly, I never did develop a love for. But everything else, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to frogs and talking to dragonflies and butterflies. And, yeah, you, in a weird way, you start feeling more connected than you ever have. Hmm. I'll let you go, but um, what are you going to do next? I mean, this is a big this is a big trip. Is the next trip you stay in luxury hotels or something? I don't know. What, what do you do after this? Oh, my. Well, uh, you know, I don't like to kiss and tell. I don't like to talk about my next project until I'm in fully immersed in it. We will wait and see what that is. You have uh, a high bar to top with this. It's, a, it's a beautiful film, and it thank really you, is, Matt. as you said, a love letter to, uh, to this country. Diane, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day. Diane Whalen's film, 500 Days in the Wild, will open on the 1st of March. That's tomorrow in select theaters across Canada. It'll also be streaming later on this year on Paramount+. Plus. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.